Welcome to the Life in Deep Ellen podcast, exploring the sacred in art, faith, and community. Well, good morning. Reverend Aisha gave us a beautiful understanding of the new love languages that we need as a church. And while no resource is perfect, I also love the paradigm of the five love languages. It's a very helpful tool that can invite us to love and be loved in ways that make sense to us as people. So think with me for a moment. What is your love language? Think about it. What? I heard something. Quality time. Thank you, Becca. Anybody else want to shout out one? What's that? Meaningful experiences. I love that. Gifts. I heard gifts from Carson. Amen. We love a good gift. Acts of service. Words of affirmation. I'm hearing so many good ones. Anything else? Tacos? Yes. Yes. Amen to tacos. Yes. Well, you guys already get it. We don't have just one love language or two love languages. In fact, really, as humans, we need all kinds of ways to feel loved. And I can tell you right now that after being sick with COVID-19, y'all hit all five of my love languages and maybe even a sixth one. Um, I would have never really said that acts of service were one of my primary love languages, but when that hot soup showed up on my door, I felt deeply, deeply loved. Because as being human, we need, we all need deeper, more intentional ways of being seen, cared for, and loved by God and by each other. Today we're going to hear a story of radical love and solidarity. It's a story of Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And um, I want to invite you, we're actually going to raise the lights just a little bit if we can, and Greg has some Bibles. I, I really invite you to consider um, grabbing one if you are a visual person and you would like to read the scripture in front of you. You can also bring it uh, up on your phone. Ruth is a short book, so it's going to be uh, relatively easy to find, but it's in the Old Testament, and um, we're in the first chapter of Ruth. So, uh, and if you need help finding Ruth, Ruth is after the book of Judges. It's also after Joshua, um, and I bet you can find it. This story, first of all, the entire book is named after Ruth, okay? And what I absolutely adore about this book is that it's named after a Moabite woman, an outsider to Israel, who becomes a faithful follower of God. She is even included in the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth is an ancestor of our faith. And so as especially in a book that is mostly named after the male ancestors of our faith, we must celebrate and delight in a book that is named after a woman of faith. This is a 
big deal. Ruth is a woman after God's heart, and we're going to hear about her story today. She learns to speak a new language of love. She learns to love Naomi in ways that are not comfortable or easy for her. And she learns to love God in ways that are not comfortable or easy. So how do they get there to begin with? Let's, let's break it down. We're going to begin in the first chapter of Ruth. And I'm gonna, we're going to do this in chunks. And then I'm going to offer some observations after each chunk. So the first chapter of Ruth uh, in verse 1 Uh, I'm going to read verse 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were... Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Aren't y'all glad I didn't have one of y'all try to read this? (laughs) They went, it's me that's struggling. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. When they had lived there for about 10 years, both Malone and Chilion also died, so that the woman Naomi was left without her two sons or her husband. So let's take a moment to do some, some observations here. First of all, it says, when the judges ruled. So in ancient Israel, this means that it was part of what's called pre-monarchic Israel, which means it was before a king, okay? So you've heard probably of like King David and the king of Israel. This is before that. They don't even have an interim pastor, okay? They have, they have a council. They have a group of people that's been uh, put in charge, if you will. But they don't have a king. This is pre-monarchy. And this is a vulnerable time to be an Israelite. There, the, the scripture states that there is a famine in the land. And the famine required these people to move to a different country, right? So that is so foreign for us to understand. We often don't have to pick up and move because of uh, a geographical, you know, a, an issue. Um, although there, there are definitely people who are refugees who face this today. But most of us don't know this reality. So try to understand how vulnerable it would be to be an ancient Israelite in the midst of a famine, okay? At this time, the famine was understood as a punishment by God. And it's also a major theme that relates to fertility and wombs. So in ancient Israel, land is also, has a double meaning. It always relates to uh, a theme of fertility, okay? And that theme is gonna come back up later. But really understand that This was a hard time. The famine is understood as this punishment. 
There's also uh, the, the real system of patriarchy that's involved here. And so for a woman like Naomi, her only security is that of a man. She needs a man to have financial, economic, and even social respect, okay? And what happens to her man? He dies. Now she also has two sons. What eventually happens to them? They die. So already, her security is threatened. It's a famine. She doesn't have the security of her husband and her sons. She is vulnerable. So what happens next? We're going to next read verse 6 through 9. Then she, returned, she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she has heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had had consideration for his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went, on to the, they went on their way back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead with, and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security security. Each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud. Okay. So she gets word that the famine has ended. And notice that this is the only time that Naomi directly mentions something that God has done. She, she, she learns that the Lord has had consideration for his people and given them food. But really in this whole chapter, we don't hear a lot about what God is directly doing, which kind of speaks to the struggle that they're in. But in this moment, she hears that the famine is over, and so she's ready to go back to her homeland because remember, she has moved because of this famine. And she tells her daughters-in-law to to stay where they are. Don't, you don't have to go back with me. Um, you can find new husbands. You can find your security. You don't have to be vulnerable in the same way that I am. So I wonder what Naomi's love language was. She seems to be wanting to show the same kindness to them. And she assumes that what is best for these women is to go back to their own mothers. And that's a good assumption. Why, why would she assume that they really want to do anything but, but go back to their own families? Naomi is willing to forsake companionship, which could give her more security, right? Like she's vulnerable. She could say, no, you're going to stay with me. But she's willing to forsake that because she wants to show them kindness. And she kisses them, and, and this is um, that love language of physical touch. It's a, another love language, a, a moment of affection between people that she loves. So what are they gonna do? What do they decide to do? Let's see, let's go to verse 10, and we're gonna go 10 through 14. They said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? 
Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Oh my. Well, all of the reasons she lists are, are very good reasons, right? It doesn't make sense for these women to stay with her. She is, she is assuming also that they value her for the same things that the patriarchal society values her for. So notice that. She says, I don't have, a, I don't have any sons for you. Why would you want to stay with me? Right? She's assuming that they only care about what she can provide them, right? And she mentions the word bitter. We're gonna come back to the word bitter, but she mentions bitterness. And she says, the hand of the Lord has turned against her. She also tells these women to return to their gods, to their people and to their gods. Because remember, at this point, it is a radical idea to believe in one God. Right? Like at this point, you, there's a lot of different gods. It's a big deal to just believe in one. Y'all got used to believing in one, but back in the day, it really wasn't that simple. So she's even giving them the invitation to return to their other gods. But Ruth, what did Ruth do? What does it say? What's the phrase? Someone want to say? Ruth clung to her. Okay, so Ruth is not wanting to take her up on her invitation. Let's, let's hear what happens next. We're going to do verse 14 through 18. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. You know that feeling probably when you're telling someone, oh, you really don't have to do that. I promise, I promise, I promise. You don't have to love me in this way. I promise, and then they just argue back with you, right? They say, no, I'm doing this. I'm bringing the casserole. I am calling your doctor. <laughs> I'm doing the thing that's hard. Even if you're giving me an out, I'm still gonna do it. And that's the example that Ruth gives. So she shows Naomi that 
Ruth values her not for what she can provide her or what her status is in this patriarchal society. She, she's, she says, I don't care if you don't have a man for me. I'm not, I'm not looking for a man. <laughs> I'm looking to go with you and go with your people. And so uh, she also, she says, remember in this world where there are many gods, she says, your God will be my God. Huh. She decides to follow God in all of this. A lot of times this scripture is interpreted as Ruth really just being eager to follow Naomi. And, and that it's this intense love for Naomi that draws her to follow her. But I would actually say that Ruth is actually choosing to be in a deeper covenant with God and God's people. It's not just about Naomi. She, ha- she, could, she, could, have, she could go to other gods. She's choosing the God of Israel. She's making that choice. When we choose to love and act in solidarity with others, it's not because we just want to be nice people and follow them where, we go, where they go and we don't want to stay by ourselves. When we choose to love, it's an act of worship and an act of commitment to God. It's actually about God. So let's read the last chunk of this, of this story here. Uh, and, and hear how the story kind of starts to um, evolve. So Ruth has decided she's going to stay, and Naomi is given up any efforts of trying to um, persuade her otherwise. So this is verse 19, and we're going to go to um, we're going to go to verse 22 the end of the chapter. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, call me no longer Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law who came back with her from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Okay, it's kind of a downer of an ending of a chapter, right? Maybe in our version, we would hope that Naomi is just overjoyed that Ruth decided to come with her, and now her faith and trust is restored, and then they go celebrate, and they have a fun party, and then they love God forever, (laughs) right? But the beauty of Scripture is that it's real, right? It actually shows the real feelings of people who love God and are going through something hard. And if you love God, have you ever gone through something hard and said said some hard things out loud? 
You felt some bitterness. Who's felt some bitterness? Yeah. We don't say that in church a lot, but that's human. And our Bible actually gives us examples of people who love God who sometimes feel bitter. Imagine that. Faithful people who go through valleys, who go through dark nights of the soul. So let's break down this last passage just a little bit. Um, It's important to know that in the Old Testament, names mean something, okay? It's not just like your mama loved loved the name Emily and, and gives you the name Emily. Like you are named something that is deeply tied to your identity and, and your identity in God, even. Um, and so, so Naomi's name means pleasantness. Pleasantness. What if your name was pleasantness? <laughs> It'd be a, a delightful, lovely name. And um, perhaps you can relate to feeling like you need to always be pleasant. Right? You need to, if you love God, you need to have a smile on your face at all times. You got to really smile if you love the Lord. You got to be pleasant. Right? We're not really, we don't often tell Christians that they can, you know, walk around being unpleasant. <laughs> right? Like that's not a good strategy. Our culture really does um, value this, this pleasant attitude. And I think that that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. I think that um, Naomi felt, felt like it was her duty to be pleasant, but she didn't feel pleasant. You know what I'm saying? She felt bitter. And so her words in this last part of the chapter, um, we might think they're a little dramatic, right? Um, I'm, I'm going to... Does anyone watch Schitt's Creek? I'm, I'm going to have to reference Schitt's Creek because it saved me during being sick. Like, oh my gosh, those episodes. I couldn't even really laugh, but I would laugh inside. <laughs> um, and so I can kind of see, like, this, this part reminds me of Moira because Moira is a very dramatic character in the show. And um, I can just kind of hear her being like, Call me no longer, Naomi. Call me Moira. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Like you can kind of hear this dramatic um, perspective. It's a little dramatic. Come on, Naomi. You're going to have your whole name changed. Okay? Like we can go through a hard time and not need to have our whole name changed. My Lord. Like come on now. But, I mean, truly, though, it's part of our scripture, and we can relate to feeling so deeply bitter, so deeply um, confused by the ways of God. Like, they just confuse us. We don't understand what's happening, that we feel like maybe even God has left us, that we feel that maybe God is punishing us. And even though that isn't the truth, we can feel that. We can all feel that as, as believers, as disciples. Um, but I will say, and she was really dealing with this idea that God was punishing her. That's a heavy, heavy thing. She's understanding 
um, everything that's happened to her as a punishment from God. Now let's talk about that because this theology still, still shows up today. It still creeps and lurks and hides in the shadows. And preachers still like to say sometimes that um, calamities and tragedies are acts of God's punishment. And this is a deeply, deeply harmful theology. It is just not true. Um, we see this with, you know, the AIDS crisis, with any major crisis. There's always a temptation among some people to say, well, that was God's punishment. No, 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 no. That's just not true. Because we can start to see this story in light of um, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's where we're going to shift into um, the gospel for just a moment. Um, as Christians, we, we never want to, um, we, we want to read the Old Testament and really honor where they were. But we also read the Old Testament a little bit differently because we do read our scripture in light of who Jesus is and was, okay? So I wonder if, if our understanding of this story um, would be supported and enriched by, um, by, the, by who Jesus is. Because while, yes, God is a God of justice, God is not a God of wrathful punishment, like full stop. The Gospels teach us that God's heart longs for us to have abundant life. And while suffering, pain, and injustice, disasters, natural disasters happen, they do not come from the heart of God. There's no room in the heart of God for that. The heart of God desires for us to feel abiding love. Now, yes, God is a God of justice. God is a God of accountability. God is a God of um, transformation. But rend, uh, wrathful, angry, random, chaotic revenge, that just isn't, that isn't who God is. That ain't it. And so we hear this in um, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Uh, I love that John says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's such a key difference, right? Um, I'm wondering if Ruth was kind of feeling some of the, sh or Naomi was feeling some of the shame of condemnation, Condemnation from her society, condemnation from uh, maybe others in her life that didn't understand. And so she's, she's feeling this. Um, but God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I wonder if Naomi would have needed to change her name to Mara if there was more space in her community at that time to express her grief to be deeply loved through that grief and to hear that God was not punishing her with her suffering. If you take away anything from this sermon today, uh, may it be that love is intentional. Love takes risks, it deals with discomfort, and it makes oaths of solidarity, it makes commitments. 
Love is not interested in politeness or social norms, but rather true relationships that glorify God and bless God's people. Love says, where you go, I will go. I want to give a specific example of sometime in our, in our society now where, where this intentional love shows up. Oftentimes, uh, the argument against respecting the pronouns of others, right? Gender, queer, and non-conforming people who have different pronouns. There's an argument against respecting that. And sometimes it says that it's too inconvenient to be concerned with political correctness or politeness, and it's selfish of someone who is genderqueer to demand that others learn a new language so that they can feel more loved. It's just so selfish of them, right? And this is a very real argument that's, that's given a lot. But you know what I hear? <sighs> a new language. And we've talked about love languages today. Sometimes we gotta learn new languages. And we all have to learn new languages, not just some of us, right? The gospel asks all of us to shift a little bit. That's the only way that the body of Christ can come together is if everybody's giving, giving a little bit. And so maybe that means I'm gonna learn a new set of pronouns. I might sound awkward, but because I love you, because I love God who loves you, where you go, I will go. What pronouns you choose, I will respect. What boundaries you place, I will honor. What pain you carry, I will share in. You see, we don't do this to cater to other people's needs, to just be polite people. We do this because we love God and we long for others to feel God's love too. We educate ourselves, we join the work of justice, we listen deeply to the cries of black and brown and indigenous people not as a sinful distraction from God, but because we love God. And God loves all people. And God especially cares about the cries of those who are feeling unloved. So my friends, what, how will this story change you? What oath will you take on? What vow of solidarity is God asking you to consider? What new love language will you have to learn so that God's kingdom can reign here on earth as it is in heaven above? Let's do this work together.